As we record this podcast, Barack Obama is currently giving the eulogy at John Lewis's funeral. In a statement on John Lewis's passing, Barack wrote, Not many of us get to live to see our own legacy play out in such a meaningful, remarkable way. John Lewis did. And thanks to him, we now all have our marching orders. To keep believing in the possibility of remaking this country we love until it lives up to its full promise. And I'm Xander. And you're listening to Geek Prime. So here at Geek Prime, in light of the protest movements we've seen this year, we decided to do a series on social change and pop culture. This episode is going to be about graphic novels, and specifically two graphic novels that really, uh, we thought, kind of encapsulated the using the medium to educate people and push for social change. They are John Lewis's March Trilogy and George Takei's May Call Us Enemy. So just some background on March. Congressman John Lewis, as Kim said, passed away recently. And while there's been more awareness around him in recent years, many people still don't realize the the level he had in the civil rights movement and how instrumental he was in that movement. Let's just lay the groundwork. It's important for me in the process of discussing this graphic novel not to tell you John Lewis's story. Um, I highly recommend you read the novel for yourself and let John Lewis tell you his own story. There are also movies. There's also uh, autobiography about John Lewis. Yeah. So yeah. definitely documentaries. Yeah, documentaries about John Lewis and about the civil rights movement. So definitely check those out. That's not what this podcast is going to be about. We're going to be talking about his story in graphic novel form, how it came to life and how it was illustrated, how it was portrayed, um, the nuances of the storytelling, things like that. And the benefits of using the, uh, the graphic novel medium. Um, so March is a three volume graphic novel series that, uh, were all published between 2013 and 2016. Uh, it tells the story of John Lewis's journey from a small farm in rural Alabama to a leader of the civil rights movement, one of uh, what are called the big six of the civil rights movement. Uh, he's the last uh, person alive uh, that was alive that spoke at the 1963 march on Washington. Uh, and for him, uh, things really culminate um, both in the movement and in a dramatic sense in the books in the march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge on a day that came to be known as Bloody Sunday. Because of all that he endured, it's so fitting that John Lewis got turned into a comic book because I truly believe he's a superhero in his own right. I, I, and they, they actually nod to it, I think, somewhere in the towards the end of the book. It's either in the thank yous or in some sort of like notes or something um, or in somebody's review as well. It, oh yeah, there were a lot of a lot of amazing reviews. Yeah, um, you know, just calling John Lewis a superhero and saying how fitting it was that he got turned into a graphic novel and that he was alive to uh, to work on this uh, comic book in collaboration with uh, Nate Powell and Andrew Aiden. Yeah, and uh, and like Kim said, we don't want to tell the story for John Lewis, because, I mean, frankly, he does a way better job uh, than we could ever do. Um, but we're going to look at the at the books and how this medium can really convey struggle and convey history. And so you are an amateur artist and you studied art I, and I literature in college. I so, call myself an well, artist, but okay. You, you dabble, but you, uh, dabble. <laughs> you also studied art and literature in college. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, what really stood out to you about these books visually? Um, so number one, if you are not familiar with Nate Powell, the illustrator, definitely look him up. He's um, won a couple of Eisner Awards, I believe. He's incredibly talented, but he has an amazing roster of just working on on social justice pieces. And so definitely look him up, familiarize yourself with him. Um, but what I what I love, and, and when we get to They Called Us Enemy uh, later on in this podcast, because they both kind of choose the same, they both sort of made the same choices, is the seriousness of the story that they're telling um, is really 
sort of emphasized by the fact that the illustrations are in black and white. It Yeah, yeah. It's it's it feels a lot more like like color would have uh been distracting. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. And it's funny because to to me it had the effect of cementing these stories, these epic stories. Um tragic in in, in some ways, but again, no less epic than some of the, the stories that we read in other genres. Um, but it cements these, these events as fact. It's as if it's, it has the same effect as if you're watching this old newsreel from, from mm-hmm. that time. So I, I love, I love that artistic decision. Um, I also, if I can make a, a comment on that, I also felt like, um, especially in, in just the way, cause in, when they called us enemy, it was more structured in panels. Whereas in March, there was a lot of like the black and white made it flow. Like the, just the panels all kind of like, they weren't all clearly defined. They just kind of like flowed, like almost snaked across the pages at some points. Yeah. Uh, But you were able to follow like where they were going, but it was just like this very interesting, like kind of conveying the chaos of the civil rights movement of the sixties. That's a great point that, that was definitely why that method was chosen to, to not outline certain panels and not make it clear what's happening. A lot of times um, the story kind of bounces between two events, not just the main, like sort of the 1960s civil rights um, narrative. And then juxtaposing that with the, um, the inauguration of president Barack Obama. Uh, but you know, the, the events at the time, there were multiple things going on. There were multiple uh, constituents involved and multiple stories, multiple deaths, um, mm-hmm. even. And so, you know, they sometimes ping pong between, um, between places, between physical places. And, and it's, it's sometimes, yeah, it, it, it flows and blends so well together. It's hard to lose track, but remember all these people that we've lost along the way meant something to mm-hmm. John Lewis. And so while he was attending the funeral of one person, he was often thinking about another person who was about to die. Yeah. And that was just the, the reality of, of, of what, the movement. Yeah. Of the That's movement, the what he yeah. was dealing with. Yeah. So the way people are portrayed, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of gruesome scenes that kind of, uh, at times almost remind me of, um, of the artist Jock, uh, who, who does a lot of, of body gore, um, like, uh, like Scott Snyder's witches. He did the illustrations mm-hmm. for that and very like intense, uh, stuff, but there's also a lot, there are also a lot of impactful panels that kind of, that didn't have violence. Uh, most of them, I, it, it's interesting because most of them didn't have violence, but the ones that have violence stick out because of how, um, just how serious those panels are made to, to stand out. So, yeah. uh, so what was your, what were your thoughts on that? What I really appreciated about the illustration was the expressiveness of the characters. Um, Nate Powell went through great pains to make sure that all the faces in a crowd were portrayed as individuals, which mm-hmm. I I thought was just such a lovely detail that I picked up on very early. Cause there are a lot of crowds in, in this, yeah. in this, um, in this store, there's a lot of marches, there's a lot of gatherings. There's a lot of just, um, you know, a, a lot of sort of gatherings of large, large gatherings of people. So for, for Nate Powell to really take the care and the time and the effort to make sure every face is individualized, um, meant a lot to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, not only did he, you know, take care to portray every individual in this story, whether they are named or not, he also made them incredibly expressive. Um, and yeah. it's, it really, really punctuated every scene, even the people in the background. It's almost like he he casted incredible background actors. Um, but even the people in the background really added to the mood of each scene, whether it's a, a joyous scene, which, you know, frankly, there are few and far between in, in this series or, or a, you know, or horrifying scene, um, such as the, you know, the bloody Sunday, mm-hmm. um, scene. So, so, I, I did appreciate that. I did notice that. And, and, you know, it does make this, it does enhance the experience of reading this book. Yeah. And 
uh, one thing I thought was interesting, uh, even like the the lettering, um, while it, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily always in, intended this way, um, like the when John Lewis uh, was worried about about divisions within the movement, the the word divided was the letters were separated by by more than than other words were separated. Yeah. Um, so kind of like emphasize that when, when uh, people were timid and started fading off the, their text got smaller and unreadable when people were walking in and out of rooms, you would see just, you know, scribbles inside of speech bubbles and then like the ends of sentences. It was very like, like par- again, part of that, you know, not, not, you know, nicely neatly defined like when walking in at the beginning of the sentence i'm walking out at the end of a sentence we're leaving we're entering and leaving scenes with full like sentences and thoughts being conveyed to us we're like the ideas conveyed through like sentence fragments at times it's so funny so if you look up march book one on amazon and read the reviews one of the one of the better reviews and i think it's towards the top of of the reviews i would hope so is <laughs> if it's a good one this person I don't know how old they are. They're old enough to to have children of reading age, I, I guess, based off of the review. But uh, they said that the, they gave the book like a really high rating, but they said they deducted a couple points because um, at some points the text was hard to read, which kind of like gave me a chuckle because they talked yeah. about like having to like have their kids like come in, like they put on their glasses to try and read it better. And then they um, invited their kids to to come in and uh dictate i guess and that's for a them. good that's a good observation because at, at times yeah like when there's like whispers or people are far away or people aren't like the person that you are focused on in the panel isn't focused on the conversation that's being had the text yeah it gets a lot smaller it gets a lot scribblier yeah and there are times that yeah you kind of have to really like you have to eavesdrop almost on the rest of the uh on the rest of what's happening in in the novel and kinds of kind of gives it an extra dimension you know makes it from like from just like a two-dimensional like linear thing to like there's things happening that you like are only peripherally aware of um and it yeah it just gives it that extra that extra dimension of uh that depth of text it's funny because it's it's a graphic novel so it's primarily visual but they made sure that sound was conveyed properly mm-hmm. so like you said it was the whispering was the small scribbly words and it, it it visually represented what happens when you strain to eavesdrop on somebody um i love the the singing parts the parts mm-hmm. where they're there oh yeah the text was beautiful they, yeah they, the, the, it was like in cursive and everything. Yeah, so there there are beautiful singing parts and song was a very strong part of um, the story because there there's a lot of not just gospel songs but um, just songs that we now know to be just march songs. They're now songs that are commonly sung at protests and marches. Um, but it's it 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 also sort of emphasized how important the sound of the civil rights movement was in addition to what it looked like. Yeah. And like, and it, it it really, again, that extra dimension, uh, especially when they were in, when they were in jail, uh, and the, uh, the members of SNCC, the student nonviolent coordinating committee, Mm -hmm. um, who'd been arrested and, and put into, into jail in Mississippi, uh, they're, they're singing that is agitating the guards to the point where the guards are assaulting them. Uh, just kind of like filled the panel behind the guards, everything yeah. you see kind of like everyone's kind of enveloped in, in song. You can kind of like, it really conveys just, you know, these, these young men and women kind of just singing like, you know, with their whole hearts, you know, it was just, it was really good. And it also, I felt very, especially the way book one begins, um, where it all starts off in John Lewis's office on the day of um, of President Obama's inauguration, I can really and I mean I I listen to lawmakers speak a lot more than most people, but I, it, you could I could very much hear John Lewis's voice because yeah. he has a very distinct speaking style, um, and it's it's very it's it's very soft and like kind of uh, uh, rolling, but then it gets very very pointed at times because it's it's all about how he you know he wanted to be a preacher when he's a child and yes. he, he very much very much speaks like it and you can hear it i i feel like especially if you just 
I think a good a good way to go into these books is listen to um, a speech or an interview with John Lewis, which I mean, he always makes, you know, he always made. It's interesting. I got to use the past tense now. Um, really good points and had very good insights on a lot of things. So it's 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 good to kind of listen to him or even listen to his speeches back then, which uh, a couple of them are are fully verbatim especially his his speech at the march on washington is verbatim in the uh in the novel and it's uh it's so good and i've heard that speech so many times and there are a couple a couple uh lines that i've heard more than others and so it's kind of like waiting to get to those because i knew exactly the inflection that he used when he when he delivered those lines and it was just it was really interesting uh to to you know kind of experience it in that medium Going to the historical part, because that's, I think, a big part of this. Uh, for me, I, I studied history in college, and so I, I pay a lot of attention to the historical stuff. I, I, I mean, I, I knew a lot about this era and this movement, and I still, I still learned a lot. A lot of people, a lot, like, I, like a lot of the big moments uh, that I knew about. Um, uh, you know, it was really interesting to get to, but there's a there was a lot in there that even I didn't know, um, and it was just interesting seeing all these figures portrayed, um, and and John Lewis being very candid about what he thought of them at the time, what he ended up thinking about them. Uh, what what about for you? Because you don't usually look at things with a historical eye, because you you um you are more of a more of a fictional narrative kind of person but yeah how did you how did you feel about it i loved the fact that he pulled back the curtain and gave us a little behind the scenes on some of the drama that ha- there was a lot of there were a lot of forces at play that mm-hmm. you know we don't consider when we think about the civil rights movement we want to think that it was sort of this nice clean organized sort of movement. Yeah, that's and, kind of the narrative we get is it was um Rosa Parks, then Dogs and Fire Hoses, then Edmund Pettus Bridge, I have a dream, or I have a dream, Edmund Pettus, Edmund Pettus Bridge, Voting Rights Act, the end. And there's so much, so much in between. I mean there's stuff like the the you know, it was really eye-opening to read about things like, you know, the opposing views of the SNCC and the SCLC, you yeah, know? Yeah, and, and then also... And the tension well, between between the, between the SNCC and Dr. King. Exactly, exactly. And then, spoiler alert, although this is all historical facts, so it should not be a spoiler. Which yeah, you is, can't really spoil something yeah. that's, that's, what, 60 years old at this point? Exactly, but... Um, Almost. But when Malcolm X comes into the narrative and and Malcolm X's sort of more extreme views on mm-hmm. how the situation should be, the the parts where he defers to Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. And he almost uses his his philosophy that he's known for as like, if you all don't listen to Martin Luther King Jr., mm-hmm. well, then we're going to do it my way. So yeah. I thought that was that was very interesting that he was he he deferred to to Martin Luther King and then was like, well, if, if that doesn't work, then we're doing it my way. Um, but I think my favorite behind the scenes part was John Lewis's March on Washington speech and how he almost through this novel got a chance to redo that speech. Yeah, that had been, you know, sort of hacked away at by several people who disagreed with some of the statements that he was making. And so it was was almost like a too many cooks in the kitchen situation Mm -hmm. and too many people trying to control him and his words. And it wasn't, it was the first time, but it wasn't the last time that that was going to happen to one of his speeches. But the fact that he got a chance to deliver all those redacted parts. Yeah. And he actually, so I've actually been, been reading, um, and listening to uh, a lot of uh, um, uh, John Lewis kind of uh, obituary podcasts, and uh, just like a bunch of like a bunch of news podcasts that um, if if you haven't gotten a chance to check them out, I would say like uh, the Daily Post reports, um, uh, NPR. They all have really good um, people talking about John Lewis and talking specifically about the uh, the speech at the March on Washington, but it. 
it was just really interesting because like he actually even held back a little bit in in the book. He he obliquely kind of mentions the line about Sherman, but his he originally the one of the biggest issues that people apparently had with his speech was um was that he he said, and I'm very much paraphrasing, you should definitely go and check out the actual phrasing because it's far, far better oratory than I'm about to give you. But it was um uh we'll we'll march through the through the south like Sherman um and uh and burn to the ground the structures of uh of racial segregation and of white supremacy and it was just it was considered to be too much uh for for people to handle because Sherman I mean even now I I can attest that um as a uh as the grandson of uh of Virginians and Georgians I remember my uh, my two of my grandparents were got very sensitive whenever you brought up uh, the the name Sherman. It, it was a very sensitive thing, and so in the '60s, it was I mean, multiplied, uh, and so uh, it was. It, I mean, it's a very impactful speech, even without these parts. But it's worth going back and looking at his original speech and the uh, the parts that were taken out because it's just it's a really good just really good oratory and uh and a really good kind of uh um summation of of what snick wanted what the movement was about and it just it's it's fascinating and it's fascinating to get to see that that process and how it was being edited up to just a few minutes before he had to go out there um so this stuff this stuff wasn't even wasn't even ready until he was about to go on stage yeah so I guess to pivot a little bit. So we read March and I'm just going to say this because I've been saying it actually I've been saying it to my friends and in some communities that I'm in. If you are going to read March, I do not recommend uh, reading all three books back to back in a short period of time. In a yeah, short period of time. Like it's we something did. you want to digest, not um, not not binge because it is. It is a lot. It's intense. Um, it's intense. It's infuriating. It is um, stressful to read. I think, despite all that, I think it's essential. I think this book should be required reading. In oh, it's in, it's incredible! It's incredible, and and that goes to the power of this medium and why I think it was such an incredible idea to uh, to tell this story not in 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 memoir form, but in, in graphic novel form, because it opens up to such different audiences. I mean, like it, it's something that, you know, you can, that people who don't typically go through like dense, like textbooks can really engage with and can, and also it can convey a level of, of frustration, of sadness, of joy, of, of feeling that just, words on a page can't because you can see people being assaulted. You can see yeah. John Lewis bleeding as he's going up to give a speech. You can see, uh, you can see him dancing with Shirley MacLaine. You can see all these things. Yeah. So it was, you know, personally for me as, as someone who's been pretty involved in sort of the, the current black lives matter movement. Um, not, not as involved as some sort of, other activists, but uh, I've been pretty vocal and and have been joining joining in uh, some marches and demonstrations and and things. But um, it it was an emotional read for me, and oh, to yeah. and and especially like especially reading it in light of John Lewis's death. It was just a it it was a lot of it was a lot of emotions, sort of um, for sure you know, activated by, by this novel. Um, so I don't recommend that to anybody. <laughs> I yeah, would, yeah. Um, but I do recommend that you read it. I do recommend that your children read it. Um, I, you know, oh, yeah. I saw a review of March and the review was actually quite generous in that they did not bring up the fact that there's quite a bit of, um, use of the N word. In, yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. And I mean, it, it's 
It's the South in the sixties. It's, it's critical to the. It's critical to the story. It's critical. But yeah, to the it book. is. Yeah, I mean, the first couple of times you see. I mean, I mean, every time you see it, it's very jarring. Yeah, but that was the that reality was, yeah. of the situation, and, and which is it's better than sanitize because if we sanitize history, it's you know absolutely we're not going to learn from it. What's important about them being quite liberal about using the N word and and portraying it for historical accuracies sake is that either children learn the n-word in a not so great context from potentially a family member or some other influence in their life or they learn the n-word in this context in the context of the fight for civil rights and the story of john lewis so and how terribly dehumanizing it is yeah and how terrible a word it is exactly and so I think that's why, despite the fact there that there is profuse use of the N-word throughout this book, it still should be required reading for oh, yeah, children. Absolutely. That is all a lot to uh to deal with, but there are also some very fun moments, interestingly enough, in, in the book. What what kind of like struck you as like cinematic or or just like unique to graphic novel writing? So when the big six, Martin Luther King Jr., James Farmer, John Lewis, obviously, A. Philip Randolph, Roy Wilkins, and Whitney Young. So when they all get together, the scene where they all get together, it was as satisfying as watching the Justice League line up for the first time on the big screen or the Avengers. Yeah, yeah. At, it's at like the where, they, where they name... Where they name, you know, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Greenland, you know, you just kind of see them just staying there in their poses and and their names underneath. Yeah. Um, and it was or, like that. Yeah. Or like that scene from Endgame when like Doctor Strange opens up our, all the portals and everybody pops out yeah. and just lines up and does their little pose. There's also an amazing scene. Um, so what this book was great about was it brought important figures in the movement who might be lesser known to the forefront. Mm-hmm. So there are like sort of the the pop culture names that we all know that are associated with civil rights, but then there are people like Diane Nash and yeah, and she was a superhero in her own right throughout this book. I loved, um, you know, I I loved when she returned. Actually, um, it, she so she goes away for like I think most of book two, right? She's like in the beginning I, of yeah, book two, and then she like goes away for most of the narrative. Yeah. And there's like a kind of a reunion that happens later. Again, this is not a spoiler because you should know all this because this is all fact. <laughs> but what was lovely about that scene when she comes back is it reminded me so much of when Captain Marvel shows up in, yeah. at, at Endgame, sort of at the lowest point of Endgame. They like the after the five year jump and all the heroes don't know what to do, and she just like shows up and yeah. and and that for me that was when diane nash comes back into the narrative so another parallel that i found between john lewis and superheroes just that just reinforces for me that he's a superhero is the humility with which he describes his origin story so to speak so the fact that he was this to be frank weird kid who talked to chickens and preached to chick- like he <laughs> yeah. he knew at like a very very young age that he wanted to be a preacher also that he practiced and he practiced with these chickens and he wasn't really that great at school until school got taken away from him yeah and the fight to to continue going yeah which was actually funny because he used to like hide under his like porch and then wait for the school bus to like come around and then once he saw the school bus he would just go flying out from under his porch and run after it but he did he had he 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 admitted he wasn't that into school until he no longer could go to school which you know was symbolic in and of itself which Mm -hmm. is like you know um but it for me it was very it was very Superman. It was very Clark Kent. <laughs> it was very Smallville. It's the humble beginnings of this sort of farm boy, you know. And mm-hmm. so I, I definitely was thinking Superman for a lot of a lot of book one. Definitely thinking Smallville. <laughs> I could definitely see that. And then there were just other sort of lovely moments uh, sprinkled throughout the 
the book. So in book three, one of my favorite scenes was, you know, this uh, the details in the scene, like protesters were holding up get well signs when Sheriff Clark collapsed and was hospitalized. And it's like, again, like the power of the quote background actor in, yeah. in, in this in this book is really amazing. Um, and then, you know, transitioning to that never button on the next page. Uh, to me, it was so powerful because there didn't need to be narrative or dialogue there. The visuals themselves really told yeah. that story. Yeah, it was almost like the comedian's button from Watchmen. Uh, yes. How it, the 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 button just conveys something um, that, you know, conveys the thing about, it conveys like the character in just a button. And I know you like, uh, you like John Lewis's line of, of good trouble. Oh, yeah. I quote it all the time. It, and we also, you know, we attended a, a memorial for John Lewis. So every and, time. And to, uh, interestingly enough, C.T. Vivian, uh, who passed away just uh, a day or two before. That's right. That's right. Uh, who's also in uh, very uh, prominent in March. Yeah. So it's just. There's a moment where John Lewis is talking about C.T. Vivian getting punched by Sheriff Clark, and that's when he drops the good trouble line. Mm-hmm. And it was just like I got chills. It was it was such such a poignant moment. Um, there's also I think this is my all time favorite. I mean, any of the Barack Obama scenes were my <laughs> all time favorite. Um, just because. I did think, yeah, juxtaposing like his story with with Obama's inauguration, how it weaves through all three books was really was really interesting. Yeah. It's, but there's one scene that you really liked. Oh, the, so there's a moment where we see this card or this piece of paper or pamphlet. I'm not 100 percent sure what it is uh, that on the day of Barack Obama's inauguration. So John Lewis uh, hands it to Barack Obama and. Barack Obama signs it because of you, John. And right after that, they go to the the scene in Selma. And it was just that was just an incredible decision. It was mind blowing. It was so moving and touching to then move to a scene that that was such a like basically made such like a dent in the mm-hmm. in the fight for civil rights, it, it's it's one of the most sort of iconic historical moments in American history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so March, uh, just amazing books. Uh, you should definitely check them out, especially if you're interested in learning a little bit more about the civil rights movement, uh, learning some more about John Lewis, uh, learning... or just reading a really good superhero story. Yes, yeah. that is actually fact. And it, it, they are actually just independently of of the of like the the material. It's just well written, well illustrated uh, graphic novels. So um, definitely go check those out. Um, they are three books, um, all of them really good. Don't read them too quickly and in too short an amount of time because they are a lot to emotionally deal with. But or maybe that's just me. Is it just me? No, no, it was a lot for me too. Yeah. Um, but uh but anyway, so so turning to our other book, uh They Called Us Enemy by George Takei. Uh it was published in twenty nineteen and uh it's something that uh that is is very similar to to John Lewis's books in that it kind of like shows the 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 injustices against uh, that that America has um, heaped on a group of of people based on their based on their ethnicity and and uh, and kind of George's journey from childhood. There's actually a review. Um, I think it's the Washington Post or the New York Times. I can't remember which one, but there's a review that. Uh, Originally, started comparing it to Mouse, and oh. then said, and then pivoted and said it's actually um, better compared to March. Yeah. So it's it's really funny. I didn't know that before we started putting together this podcast. So I thought mm-hmm. it was really interesting that they're like these two books together are just you know prime examples of of the history of race in America and, and yeah. their like essential reading. Yeah. Basically. And, and things that happened 
in the lifetime of people who are still alive today. Um, not this isn't you know ancient history stuff. This is this stuff that you know happened you know relatively recently. Um, but uh, but yeah. So they call us enemy uh, is the story of George Takei's experience and his family's experience in the Japanese internment camps uh, in throughout that were in the United States uh, after World War II started. Um, and just for a little background, um, because George even points out that at one point he goes through uh, some civics books when he's a teenager to like learn more about the internment camps, and there's nothing there. And there's still, I think, very little, if you don't go out and look for it, there's very little on, uh, until now, on Japanese internment um, or incarceration, as he as he puts it a lot in the book. He, he uses the word incarceration. Um, but what it was was that um, right after uh, Pearl Harbor, the U.S. declares war on Japan, and then um, the Attorney General of California start Earl Warren, who later becomes governor of California, who later becomes chief justice of the Supreme Court, uh, starts talking about how uh, Japanese citizens and Japanese immigrants in uh, on the West Coast, and especially in California, uh, are kind of, you know, uh, it's very, you know, unclear where their where their allegiances lies. And these are some of them are, are you know, immigrants to the United States. Some of them are are you know, first and second generation Americans. So like, you know, Americans who, you know, not grew up in Japan, grew up in, you know, Takei's mother grew up in Sacramento. Um, his father, um, came to, uh, uh, I believe San Francisco when, uh, when he was a, uh, I believe a teenager. Um, and so, you know, Takei is, you know, third generation or second generation American. Um, and, uh, but he and and he kind of you know lays out the story of of like the beginnings of his family and how he he and his brother were named for King George the Sixth and King Henry the Eighth, um, and uh, and his sister was named Nancy for uh, for a woman that the the Decays admired, um, but and it starts you know with the very happy memories of youth, uh, but then very quickly turns when. Pearl Harbor gets bombed. The U.S. declares war, and you you see like he does a really good job conveying the term like the incarceration through the eyes of a child, but then with the retrospective of an adult. Yeah, so I thought the the fact that he's a child in this novel is really interesting, and even George Takei himself mentioned that he and, and you mentioned it as well that he kind of researched. Uh, the internment camps um, as a teenager because it, he did admit that there's a there's a little bit of like you know he, the memory of a child is is different you know than, yeah. than the memory of an yeah. adult so John Lewis telling his story um, you know as as an adult and you know being primarily in his I guess twenties uh, throughout mm-hmm. most of March you know George K specifically you know, pointed out that it might have been a little bit of a flawed narrative because he wanted to stay true to that childlike perspective. Yeah. And and it's just interesting because just looking at it through his eyes, but also seeing it as an adult and seeing his parents experiencing it. Exactly. And that this is another one where the art just really does just a great job of conveying the kind of dual narratives of um you you see Takei and his little brother playing around uh and his baby sister and then you see his parents and how like his his father like his mother's you know very distraught through a lot of a lot of the book um because of the you know because of the terrible things that are happening to them and his father is uh is a very thoughtful man and he's he's very um you can see him really wrestling with things and trying to figure out, you know, okay, there's a situation. How do I, how do I help my family best here? Which is why the parents are drawn with a little more realism. And then the kids are a little more sort of anime manga style. 
Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know exactly how to uh, how to mm-hmm. how to characterize this uh, this artwork. I, I asked you to kind of because yeah. I, I thought at first it looked a little um, like you're right. The parents are drawn a little more like uh, like Eisner style. I felt like mm-hmm. um, I might be I might be wildly I mean, off. I'm not also, an artist co- at all. Compared to this to the approach that Nate Powell took in March, like everything was a little bit more the the line rounder lines yeah the line work was a little more simplified but again you're looking at things through the eyes of a child so i yep. think that was a, a a really conscious decision on the artist's part to um to to give it this this sort of the clean lines and the sort of almost like minimalist approach mm-hmm. um but d- they did switch with a lot of the kids and especially some of their reactions to things um did switch over to anime yeah yeah um and so it's it was really interesting so it was executive order 9066 uh that roosevelt signed and this just like march kind of ping pongs between time periods uh it starts out with uh takei's ted talk in ontario and uh and it also goes a little bit to him speaking at new hyde park at uh, Franklin Roosevelt's home, uh, which is a very, very powerful thing. And he's he's telling part of the story at the TED Talk. He's telling another. He's telling parts of it from uh, from FDR's home. And it's just it's really interesting. I got to I got to see him uh, speak at Seattle at uh, Emerald City Comic Con last year. Um, back when you know we could go to cons and stuff um but it was he i mean his panel was great uh from i mean from what i've from what i've heard all his his panels are always great um but it he was talking about um about they call us enemy and um and he was talking about and i'm going to skip ahead a little bit in in this because again i don't want to tell Takei's story for him because i he just does such an amazing job laying this out for himself. But um, there, when his family was eventually um, uh, let out of the internment camp, they they can't go back to their old home. They they owned a you know two bedroom house in Los Angeles that they're they're they were forced to just give up when they were taken away for uh, for for four years and. When they get back, they have to uh, they have to live in a hotel for for a while um, on Skid Row, and it was a very like I mean there you know you can just kind of see a lot of traumas happening to to Decay and his brother and sister in like their very developmental years in terms of being ripped away from home in being in terms of going from one internment camp to another being behind barbed wire just all this stuff, um, but when they when they left he makes a point of saying uh, in his panel that um, they, they had to live on, on Skid Row, which was a, a, you know, a lot of homelessness in that area, a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of drug use in that area. And um, then there was this one very formative moment where a, uh, where uh, this drunk homeless guy um, like, you know, is stumbling towards the Takei family and, you know, vomits and just, you know, it's a horrifying moment for George. And they, he and his brother start yelling, mommy, we want to go home. And he says by home, we meant this camp in behind barbed wire in Arkansas in the swamp. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, just the, the horror of, of that, of that, you know, that was considered home. And it's just, it's just terrifying. Cause like, as you know, as as people who have you know grown up in houses, you know we never got sent away anywhere. Um, I can't imagine. Uh, I mean, my family moved you know moved around a bit when I was in in high school, and that was tough. Um, I can't imagine uh, being being locked away. Uh, but but like you were saying, the whole through the eyes of a child thing. Takei and his siblings kind of, uh, especially he and his brother, kind of um, were just so resilient and able to adapt to the internment camp that they, he told his brother that uh, when they got there, that the barbed wire that he, he asked, did you ever hear of dinosaurs? Well, they died out millions of years ago everywhere except for Arkansas. And this barbed wire is to keep them out. 
And huh. so, like, the barbed wire was protecting them from dinosaurs was kind of the narrative that they had in their heads. Wasn't there also a scene where um, when they were first getting told they were going to Arkansas? Yeah, so it was a very, like, it, it felt like a very, like, life is beautiful moment. Um, it's the uh, Roberto Benigni movie uh, where... Uh, that is kind of a, a lighthearted movie, but it's, you know, horrifying subject matter. It's set in uh, in World War II, and it's this family that's sent away to a concentration camp. Um, so very oddly <laughs> similar. And so Roberto Benigni, through the whole movie, is like trying to – is mistranslate – is well, he doesn't speak German, so he's making things up in Italian that the guard is saying to make his son not scared at the camp and how like, Oh, they're going to have arts and crafts and stuff like that. And yeah, you're right. So, uh, to Kay's father, uh, when they get put on the train to go to, from Los Angeles to Arkansas says, Oh, we're going on vacation. And to is, is it's so excited yeah, and, and he's confused why people are crying. He's like, why we're going on vacation. I thought everyone loves vacation. So it, it the, the, the drawing style, like kind of out of character moves to a little bit of like a chibi moment. Um, and I'm pronouncing that wrong. I know mm-hmm. that I am. Um, but it moves to a chibi moment where like he like his face lights up and there's like Yeah, I noticed that. That's yeah. when I was like I was like, Oh, I thought I knew what art style this was, and I'm not sure. And I had to like I had to turn to you and, and say, What what is this? Yeah. Um but uh but yeah, no, it was it, it was really interesting. Um and it's something that uh Takei, as the book progresses, he starts revealing that he is able to, uh, like a lot of this stuff very much obviously imprinted on him because it was very traumatic, but, um, but he didn't process it as that when he was a, uh, when he was a child, but it also comes through, um, these conversations he had with his father, um, after dinner and, uh, and he kind of gets to sit back and reflect on some of the conversations he had and some of the accusations of, of why did you let them do this to us and everything? And like realizing later, like, well, you know, what else could he do? You know, there are yeah. men with guns at the door saying, you got to go, you know, what, what else, what else could he do? It was, you know, um, the terrible situation to be in, but, um, uh, but it was just, it was, I didn't realize until I read this, that there were, um, I thought all the, all the internment camps were in, in the West. I didn't realize they came as far East as the Mississippi river in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Um, and just seeing the map of where all the, all the camps were, um, it, it was just, it was really interesting. And, and barbed wire kind of is a, is a theme throughout the, the novel. You see people, um, behind barbed wire a lot. And even when, you know, after the internment, um, you see Takei in school and he's on the receiving end of, uh, of some racism from, uh, from a, a teacher and, and it kind of, it really affects him. And you see like, they're all, you know, he and the other students are standing there reciting the pledge and outside the window is, you know, you get closer and closer to barbed wire and a guard tower. Cause that was, that was America for the Takei family and for, hundreds of thousands uh, for 120,000 um Japanese Americans uh and it was uh it it was one of those things that was just very very scarring and um and terrifying but it's it's so interesting how Takei um first off it's it's hinted that his his move or his desire to act came from the camps because he uh they would watch movies and sometimes they would watch these Japanese movies that didn't come with a soundtrack. And there would be these guys behind the screen, one of them uh, doing all the voices, just one guy doing all the voices and the other one doing sound effects. And it was a, um, there was a Japanese word for it that Takei's uh, father said they, they're, they're considered artists, just like actors, these voice actors, essentially. Um, and Takei was just fascinated that, you know, one, one, person could be so many different voices and it's kind of like it's never said explicitly but that seems to be where um decay's desire for acting came from and then um as the book progresses you get to see him going into acting and of course he talks about you know going in for um for for star trek and it's just interesting because i remember i so i grew up as a huge star trek fan and Mm -hmm. so that's where my first 
interaction with George K was. Uh, but I also remember there's um, uh, there's this 1960, I believe, movie uh, called Hell to Eternity. Uh, it stars Jeffrey Hunter, who, interestingly enough, in the original pilot for Star Trek was Captain Christopher Pike of the USS Enterprise. Um, and he and Takei never acted together in Star Trek, but Takei... Uh, so he, so Jeffrey Hunter plays this uh, this uh, young man whose parents eventually um, uh, die or leave. I forget exactly how they they leave the picture, but he's adopted by this Japanese family, um, and it's the 30s. And um, in uh, when when it comes to World War II, um, he enlists in uh, in the Marines uh, because he speaks Japanese because he's been adopted by this family um and and there i remember george takei i I just remember the scene between george takei and jeffrey hunter where takei and the rest of the family are being taken to an internment camp uh and it's just you know and so for since 1960 takei has been kind of portraying this and trying to show um even though he didn't have really creative control over that he got to at least portray like there were internment camps this was wrong jeffrey hunter's character is like this is wrong why are they sending you away mm-hmm. um but uh but especially in recent years he's really george k has, has just so been able to use his art and his platform and his honestly wild popularity yeah. uh to be able to convey this he and so not just through they call us enemy but the dinosaur part um or like the things lurking in the swamp uh is uh an entire season of the anthology thriller show the terror where Takei gets to play an older man and like there's a there's these kids who play essentially Takei and his brother huh. and they're sent to an internment camp in Arkansas and there's this thing lurking in the woods. It's the show's really good. You have to go watch it. Uh, it's called the terror. Um, but then also, um, he has the stage play allegiance, which is, um, which is a, a, another version they call us enemy where he essentially gets to play almost his father. Like he's, he's older than his father. His father is mm-hmm. only in, in his late thirties, early forties during the internment. Uh, Takei is obviously, um, uh, much older than that, but, um, but he gets to play kind of that figure against himself. And it's, he's, and I mean, he, uh, um, I didn't know that when that, the Reagan administration, when they apologized to the Japanese Americans, they gave survivors of the internment camps uh, $20,000 in restitution. Um, and so even through that, Takei took that money and donated it uh, to help create the Japanese American National Museum in Los mm-hmm. Angeles. Uh, so, I mean, he and and he says like he's he didn't realize until he was older, but he has been an activist and and. Um, a participant in what his father loved to tell him was a participatory democracy his entire life because of the internment. Like he didn't have the luxury of kind of sitting out of democracy. He's been part of this for his entire life. And it was just, I thought it was just very fascinating. And he also um, brings in uh, the, you know, warnings about, uh, about things like what's happening at the border um, with uh, ice detention facilities um, and p- and people being separated from their from their children, yeah. uh, families being separated. Um, he you know gives very stark warnings about that, and also um, discusses the the Korematsu decision, which is a Supreme Court decision that um, that upheld the internment camps, um, and it, it finally was struck down by the Supreme Court, but he points out ironically in a in a decision that then upheld the trump administration's muslim ban mm-hmm. uh so it's, it's just very a very fraught thing that just like with john lewis it's it's very much things aren't over you know yeah. and and just like with john lewis this is a this is a a big piece of our history that a lot of people sadly don't know a whole lot about and even I like again. This is something that I have read a lot about, and I still like. I you know, seeing the experience was very different. I didn't. 
Um, I didn't know about the uh, um, people being given the opportunity to renounce their citizenship uh, and that his, his mother trying to like get them out of the camp or get them or get them, you know, in a place where they'd be protected, renounced her citizenship. And it was a there's this huge legal battle afterwards when she was like, holy crap, no, 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 no. And two days before the boat that they were supposed to be deported on left, her renunciation was over, kind of overturned. Uh, so it was very, like, very close call. But, um, but yeah, so it was just, it's, it, I think it was very, it was just a very powerful uh, book. Um, uh, one more Star Trek connection. Uh, I didn't know that he and Nichelle Nichols, uh, who played Uhura on Star Trek, uh, met at um, this uh, this college production that he did. Hmm. Um, so that was that was very interesting. And just like um, there's a famous story about Nichelle Nichols um, and her wanting to quit Star Trek and Dr. King, and she met Dr. King, and she told him, "Oh yeah, I think I'm I think I'm just going to leave the show." And he's like, "No, no, no, Nichelle, you you can't." My, you know, my daughter, when she turns on the TV at night, she sees you and she sees herself. You have to do that. You have to stay on that show. And, uh, I mean, you can't imagine Star Trek without Nichelle Nichols, you know? Uh, and similarly, George Takei has a moment where he met Dr. King when, um, when his, um, uh, his, uh, troop opened, like did like, you know, opening entertainment, like a song for, a rally that Dr. King spoke at and he got to meet Dr. King and march through LA with Dr. King. And it's just like all these, like all these like political and, and entertainment figures um, and activists, you know, touching in like very specific times, you know, each other's lives. It's just, it's fascinating. I think we can learn a lot from these two novels. I think like I said, I think they're superhero novels in their own right. So if that's your thing, then, then, like I said, this is required reading. Or if history is your thing, this is oh, absolutely. Yeah, these are absolutely. these are required reading. But I think it's also important to know the context in which we're recording this podcast and know what's happening right now in terms of racial inequality in America. And the Black Lives Matter movement, which has been going on um, since since before Memorial Day, but like yeah. technically since Memorial Day, these are important books to put things in perspective and to um, understand why these marches and these protests are happening. And and hopefully you feel something. Hopefully you feel the same things that we did when you read these novels. Um, I, like I said, it was it was a very stressful um, read, but this is also a very stressful time in our, you know, in our country's history, and not just in terms of of you know racial inequality, but also with COVID. Um, yeah. But it also you know, was inspiring and invigorating and has convinced me that it is more important than ever to, to take action, to educate ourselves and to take action. And, and that is what we should be spending all this time that we now have as we social distance. Yeah. And to understand like, like the, like just the historical, um, the historical, uh, relationship that, our country has had with specific groups of citizens. Um, and it's not, uh, it's, it, I mean, I know a lot of people are going to think it's a, it's a political thing. It's, it's, it's not, it's history. It's, it's stuff that happened. And these are two men telling their experiences of what happened. Yeah. And it's something, I mean, it's not, uh, um, they have their, uh, their political beliefs, but it's, I mean, you can't deny the events. You know, so it's, 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 it's really important. I mean, to me, and this is allow me to get personal for a second. To me, human rights are not political. It is your base duty and responsibility to protect human rights, to protect your fellow man, um, regardless of, of your beliefs, 
religious, like political, or, or otherwise. Yeah. Um, I think specifically in America. Yeah. I mean, our, we it's have our job under the Constitution. Yeah. It, 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 we've written that into law. So, but again, it's not a political issue. It is your duty as a human. And I think reading these two books, if, if it's not something that you're familiar with and it's not something that you do, I think this is a very good way to start. Yeah. So, uh, we recommend that you that you check those books out. Uh, we'll put links to both of these, to the March trilogy and They Call Us Enemy, in the show notes of this episode on our website. You can always check us out there, www.geek-prime.com. You can connect with us on Twitter. Let us know what you thought, Geek Prime X. Uh, you can check out our Instagram, geek.prime, where we post uh, geek news. And uh, you can check us out on YouTube. And, of course, if you like the show, please rate us, tell your friends about us, um, subscribe. And until next time, take care.